Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes to soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 94. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like William Hurt's hairline, Bill Hader's action star qualities, and the inexplicable appeal of late 90s Jake Busey. No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers, your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld level-esque daily observation. So banana peppers. Yeah, it's pretty random, right? Banana peppers. I had them for the first time in about a decade this week, and the childhood memories just flowed back. So I just felt like I had to share it with you. I used to drown my sandwiches in them because, you know, I was, I didn't have the best palate and I tried to eat healthy. Like I would try to eat turkey while everyone else, you know, had Italian subs. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to put a lot of spicy peppers on this. And it'll just taste like one giant spicy pepper. And I won't feel as bad about trying to eat healthy. And it, I don't know, there's something about it that feels immature, like banana peppers in general. Just the neon color, the spice taste with none of the heat. It's like training wheels for being for eating spicy food, but still, I love them. I almost destroyed a jar of them in three days, so uh, I'm probably going to get another one in a day or two. And I might drink the juice that at the bottom of it. Gross, I know, but that's just me. I'm weird. And I mean, like, my food habits are strange. Like, I've had the same breakfast for seven months in a row, just oatmeal with a fourth of a cup of slivered almonds and two packets of, like, the tiny packets of raisins. I'm still pumped for it every morning. I consider it like my brain considers it guilt-free cake batter. And I'm just like, hmm, that's good. And I, I, my brain goes to, in New York, my sister introduced me to this carrot cake bread pudding at this place called, oh no, not bread pudding, banana pudding at this place called Magnolia Bakery. And I'm, for some reason, the oatmeal just transfers to me like, it's the same thing, except it's healthy because I'm weird. So, and when I eat the oatmeal, I watch 80s movies on my iPad and it's just, it's just a lot of fun. And the key, I used to, you know, inhale my food within three, four minutes, it would just be gone. But I try now to take, don't take another bite unless you finish complete with the bite you've had before. And it now takes me like 14 to 18 minutes to finish the oatmeal. And it's weird. It's like, yeah, that's a big difference. You know, it's three to five minutes versus 14, 18 minutes. And that 14 to 18 minutes is key because it gets me sucked into so many movies I wouldn't have started otherwise. It's like Mark Watney said in The Martian, like you just have to begin. So you just have to start these movies and you get sucked in like because I'm watching like the last last Starfighter right now and I would never watch it otherwise but I was like let's do 15 minutes of it and see what it's about and I'm kind of into it now so and also why am I so bad with character names in movies like I wanted to call Mark Watney Matt Damon I just wanted to say Matt Damon I always want to say Matt Damon I always want to say Denzel I always want to say Tom Hanks I don't want to say their character names like why can't I just remember the character names I just don't understand it is this is this just me or is or am I getting old or is this how people do in general? I don't, I don't know. Just, I'm, I'm having, I'm having like a early midlife crisis about it. Bueller, anybody Bueller. <laughs> so right now I want to talk guilty pleasure because I was supposed to talk about Moonstruck with my friend Andrew today, but he canceled on me, but he's got a kid and a job and stuff like that. And I've canceled a bunch of times on him too. So I couldn't be that mad, but I did watch 35 minutes of clips of Moonstruck again today to be prepared for the podcast. So I got to change gears. So I was like, what can I talk about? What do I want to talk about? Guilty pleasure. So I'm talking about a show that knows what it's doing. And I've seen the plot points of this show play out before, but somehow the magnetic force of the show has me locked in. And I kind of want to figure out 
why I'm so entranced by this show. Like, have you heard the story before? It's Wealthic Perfect New York couple, Jonathan Frazier, who is a MD, who served oncology for kids, you know, he cures cancer in kids, played by Hugh Grant, Grace Frazier, $500 an hour therapist, Nicole Kidman, private school kid, powerful, wealthy grandfather looming, Donald Sutherland. And there's a murder that happens of a mother of another student. And this murder unravels Jonathan and Grace's life. Like I've seen this before, like a ton of times. I mean, this is just, it's a show that we've seen a thousand times on like the miniseries, The Night Of, Law and Order, CSI, Watchmen, Defending Jacob, Unbelievable, Sharp Objects. Yet it sucks you in every time. Like, why is that? I don't know. It's just like, when you have these people, these powerful people and these great actors, it just, it's entrancing and it's frustrating. And I want to figure out why I'm I like, I'm stressed by this show. There's four, I'm four episodes into a six episode show. It's not treading any new ground, but I'm thinking about it constantly. Who did it? Why they do it? What's going to be the reveal? What clues have been left behind so far? And also, I mean, just watching it for the New York wealthy socialite porn is by, by porn, I mean like rich people stuff. Just like there's the house they live in is a $27 million town townhouse by Central Park. And I think actually that townhouse they live in might be Chuck Rose Rhodes townhouse in billions. But I mean, well, I haven't investigated that yet. So I need to figure that out. But $27 million for a townhouse is crazy. And so to get more into the nitty gritty of the show, Jonathan was cheating with the woman, Elena, who was killed. She was bludgeoned to death in her own art, art studio. He had a bastard child with her unbeknownst to Grace or Elena's husband. And Jonathan's accused of murder. It's huge news, news publicity. And we aren't sure if he did it or not. I mean, the evidence seems so damning towards him that you're kind of, you're apprehensive to think it is him because it can't be that obvious. But maybe because it's so obvious, it's not that obvious. And it actually will be him. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. But this is the stuff you just, you get on the snowball of who did it and why. And you want to, it's your brain has this completionism kind of idea to it. You gotta, you have to figure out the crime and it's just, it's something that's literally addicting. I think it's basically a drug. And when I saw who created the show, it made me, it made me realize why it's so entrancing. It's made by David E. Kelly. It's like, oh, of course he's the king of the law procedural, the who did it. He's, he's the king of this type of TV. He did the practice, the show, Ali McBeal, Goliath, L.A. Law, Big Little Lies, Chicago Hope. He's a former lawyer, which I just found out. I mean, it makes sense because he knows the ins and outs of the law and makes it a, makes it digestible for an audience who doesn't know, you know, who didn't pass the bar. So he knows what kind of what tickles our thriller curiosity, you know, what what the news media really wants to harp on. And I wonder if he did like high profile cases and understood how to get the media wrapped around his finger, because it seems like seems like he he knows what he's doing when it comes to enticing, you know, society as a whole about a murder case. And he also is really smart because he always takes beautiful, well-known actors in high stress, impossible situations. And Nicole Kidman's perfect at the seemingly kind of above it all New York socialite. She's elegant. She's intense. She's calm. She's brooding. And watching her mentally break sometimes, it's just, there's just something fascinating about you. They, they, they focus on her face a lot and that her eyes are darting around and she's this, you know, gorgeous red kind of uh, down to her back hair. And she's just, she's almost like a modern day New York princess, but with a dark side. And Hugh Grant, who basically lived this 
part as you know the cheating husband in the eyes of the media when with his whole elizabeth hurley situation in the 90s so it's like he knows this role because he's been through this role he's just perfect for it and he's too handsome for his own good you know that kind of stuttery arrogant british kind of stiff upper lip the arrogant aging doctor who has a god complex like he's so frustrating which is perfect because you want to hate him but he's insanely charming you kind of you like his character weirdly and you're like this guy cheated on his wife he's got a kid out of wedlock and he possibly killed bludgeoner to death and he's putting his family through hell and yet he's not the bad guy for some reason and you're like why is this happening i don't understand i mean i i guess that's the weird appeal of hugh jackman i mean hugh jackman oh hugh jackman's awesome but hugh grant <laughs> and donald sutherland as the old bull grandfather he's almost like chuck Rhodes senior from billions and I know there's a lot of billions vibes, but this is a lot of wealthy New York people with wealthy New York problems. Just old money doesn't take no for an answer. Steamrolls everything. I wish, I mean, maybe not for my mental state, but just from a power trip standpoint, at some point I want to be just the old guy in a room with someone I've donated a lot of money to and be like, this is what's happening. This is how I feel. And you can't do anything about it. It's just, a, I mean, ultimate power trip. And like I said, there's tons of large facial close-ups of these A-listers, which is always fun. You're just like, oh man, that's Hugh, Hugh Grant's face, gigantic on my screen. It looks important. Nicole Kidman's freaking out. Oh my God, Donald Sutherland's making a power trip. Oh my God. And there's lots of quick cut fantasy and dream sequences too, which keep you on your toes. And mixed with the 1%, uh, you know, the 1% of the 1%, New York private schools and Central Park walks, just this hoity-toity kind of, almost royalty in America kind of vibe to the whole thing. I mean, whenever Donald Sutherland's character meets with anybody, he's at like, he's at a really elegant museum just watching the paintings. Does that really happen? Do people just go to museums all the time and that's kind of where they set up shop? That just seems crazy to me. But like I said, I have no clue who actually did it. It's really frustrating. I just hope it's not like the night of where it's just a random person you couldn't guess. I, I hate when they do that. You got to give me some clue of what's going on. Like there's got to be a little bit of breadcrumbs, but I guess nowadays everyone obsesses on Reddit and everyone kind of just makes their own ideas. So if they give even the slightest breadcrumb, people can solve it. Back in the day when there wasn't the internet, you know, you had to solve it for yourself and it was a little bit more enticing. Nowadays you just go online and do, you know, a Reddit hole and you can kind of figure it out. So I guess that's why they do the, oh, it was someone random you didn't even see coming. But like I said, I want breadcrumbs. And... I don't know. The show is just, I mean, I can't put my finger on it, but my parents love it too. And they're the ones that actually got me into it. I just texted them when I finished the fourth episode out of six. I go, I'm so stressed. Why did I do this to myself? And, you know, there's little flourishes too of the show. Like Elena, Elena's husband, the murdered wife, uh, his eyes are just crazily haunted. It's almost like they color coded them gray. He almost looks kind of like he's soulless and I'm wary of him. Like it could be him. Or it could be Grace, like the way they depict her as this brilliant, but somehow a step behind therapist who seems hyper intelligent, but never seems to know anything before. She's the last to know everything. And it's almost like she's hiding her true intentions, even from herself and the audience. And son is the son is like 12 years old, played by this really cute, curly haired kid. And he seems kind of innocent and nice, but I think he's he knows more than he's letting on. I think there'll be a reveal where he knows something. But that's always a great trope too. They know how to do this when there's a kid under like the age of 13 in a murder mystery with a family, just psychologically how that affects the kid. You just kind of get empathetic to the whole situation because this poor kid who had nothing to do with, you know, a murder or a violation of trust between the husband and wife or cheating or bastard children. 
And it's like, it's all being harped on them. And for some reason you gain sympathy for the family as a whole. You kind of want them to be fixed because the only way the kid's going to be fixed is if the family gets fixed. So that's a good, yeah. I mean, like Fatal Attraction does that. I mean, any Adrian Lyon film basically does that. And it's it's very effective. So, I mean, I, I see what you're doing, David E. Kelly. That's why he's the king. So it could be Grace's best friend, who's a lawyer, blonde, super arrogant. And she, she's just being too helpful to Grace. And she also helped Jonathan in the beginning. It seems like she might have cheated earlier in life with Jonathan. And I don't know. I just don't trust her. They're just giving her too much screen time just to be a friend. Or... Could be it could be Jonathan, like I said, as a stunner, because the guy you think the most, you you immediately put him to the side because like they're gonna solve, they're gonna cancel him out, and we're gonna find out who the real killer is. You know, that's our CSI law and order, you know, radar going up. But I'm so tantalized by this, and I hate it because <laughs> it's not that tantalizing a topic. I guess I mean it's like I want to get out of my <laughs> psychology or like I, I feel like David E. Kelly knows. I'm basically viewer 17.4 AB beta seven. You know, he has me ranked. He has me pegged. He knows what I want. He knows how to, you know, get my blood pumping right before the end of the episode. So I want more. He knows how to entice me in the first, in the beginning where the first 30 minutes is their perfect life. So I'm like, I'm into their lives. I mean, he just, and it's, I just want to say to him, it's like, David A. Kelly, I know what you're doing and stop it but it's working. But so why would you stop it? But I want you to stop. <laughs> and I'm just curious how they removed, uh, they removed all the kind of the B plots and C plots. This is just about a murder. This is a good old fashioned murder mystery. And also about how rich people try to hide their problems, hide their family lives, hide their embarrassments. And like with rich people, the murders get slowly revealed because with their money and power and influence, they can kind of hide their flaws and mistakes. It's like, oh, no, no, don't look at this. Look at something else. And that's why it's funny. The detective, who's fantastic, his, name, his name's uh, Joe Mendoza, played by Edgar Ramirez, who's been in Domino. He was in the Point Break remake. He's a that guy. You definitely recognize him. And he's he's pretty abrasive with Grace in the beginning. You're like, man, this cop is mean. But you realize two, three episodes in that when you're dealing with people in this level of wealth and power, they're going to steamroll him unless he fights back and gives them attitude because they think they can buy their way out of the problems, which in general they can. So you kind of hate him at first, but then you're rooting for him. And I love that the cop he's working with is actually a cop. So it makes it feel more realistic. Just love little testers like that. So it's just addicting to watch people who are latching on to their way of life. Like these rich people think that they can solve things and Grace is going to get back to her life and Henry's going to be able to go back to school when this is all over. And hopefully Jonathan will be acquitted. And I mean, maybe they'll get back together, but who knows? But like, why doesn't Grace just fly to Switzerland and reset with Henry while all this happens? You know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't change destiny. You can't change what's happening in front of you. You can't change the media's infatuation with this. Just get away they have the means to, but they're just so stubborn and they're kind of wealthy, nose up. I can beat this by sheer force of personality. And that's what makes it so intoxicating. But uh, I don't know. God, stupid Nicole Kidman. Stupid Grace. Grace, just go to Switzerland. Hang on Switzerland. Switzerland's awesome. But there's two episodes left. I'm still clueless and I hate it and I love it and I hate that I love it and I love that I hate it. Blah, blah, blah. And I could watch a show on mute just for the beauty of the uh, the beauty of just this cinematic high-end New York City 
Hugh Grant posturing, Nicole Kidman's eyes darting. David E. Kelly just knows television, and I'm powerless to stop him. So thank you, David E. Kelly, I guess. Or screw you, David E. Kelly. I mean, a little bit of both. And yeah, so two more episodes left, two weeks. I'm on pins and needles. Who did it? The Undoing. I don't know. Later.